Hi, welcome to Naval Gazing on valleyindy.org and 103.5 WNHH, New Haven's community radio station. Today's episode is brought to you by Valley Gives Back, a new initiative of the Valley Community Foundation. Adding a charity to your estate plan creates a legacy that tells future generations what causes matter to you during your life. Your action inspires others to follow your lead and to make a difference. With a planned gift, you have the power to impact your community forever without affecting your current lifestyle. For more information, visit valleygivesback.org. The Valley Gives Back is an initiative of the Valley Community Foundation, connecting private philanthropy to the long-term public good of the Valley. Plan now, give later, impact tomorrow. Valleygivesback.org. Hey, it's Eugene again from valleyindy.org. Welcome officially to the latest episode of Naval Gazing, the Valley Indy podcast. Today's discussion is a bit freewheeling. The guests are Rick Dunn, the executive director of the Naugatuck Valley Council of Governments. That's like a regional planning agency. They do a lot of stuff. They're involved in everything in the valley. Uh, especially in terms of whenever you read about contaminated sites that are getting cleaned up, brownfields, Ansonia's redevelopment efforts, Derby's downtown redevelopment efforts, uh, everything from, you know, uh, where the police department's supposed to go in Ansonia on 65 Main Street to the new Bad Sons Brewery, Nogatuck Valley Council of Governments has had a hand in it all. We're going to talk transportation with Rick Dunn, and also joining Rick on the phone is Jim Gilday, who is now uh, the chairman of the Derby School Board, something that actually happened after this podcast was taped last week. But Jim is very heavily involved in rail transportation, the Waterbury Line specifically here in the Naugatuck Valley. He's on the uh, Commuter Rail Council. Anyway, I, I give you all his titles once the podcast gets going. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now and enjoy the show. Oh, we're selling Valley Indie t-shirts, by the way. Look on our Facebook page or valleyindie.org. We're looking to sell a total of 50, and we're about halfway there. It's a fundraiser, and we want to get our name out there a little bit. Why not? Thanks. All right, so on the line with us uh, on Naval Gazing the Valley Indie podcast, we have Jim Gilday, who was recently reappointed to the Connecticut Commuter Rail Council by Governor Malloy, and he's been asked to, or at this point might be an official member of Senator Chris Murphy's Transportation Advisory Council. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And then in the studio, joining me 
live on the podcast is Rick Dunn, the executive director of the Naugatuck Valley Council of Governments. Good afternoon. I'm just so happy I got those organizations <laughs> and the titles correct because I never do that. So I thought today we would have a discussion uh, in general about what's happening with transportation issues, of which there are many uh, in the Naugatuck Valley and beyond, because this is really a regional, statewide, tri-state area uh, issue. And I thought maybe first, Rick, we would touch upon these charrettes, which is like a new government word that I've learned in the last <laughs> couple of years. It's not a government word. No, Cover no, no. architects... Uh, uh, use that word people smart with higher degrees advanced degrees than i that's right you use are. use these phrases uh and there there's been a series of uh charrettes that your organization the Talk valley council of governments mm -hmm. has sponsored you had one in derby right after the election you had one in seymour and i'm looking at mm -hmm. this list and hopefully this is Naugatuck. up to date you had one in Naugatuck on the 27th mm -hmm. and then tuesday december 5th you have one coming up in ansonia Correct. and that's going to be at main street 253 main street at ansonia city hall mm -hmm. and then the final one is wednesday december 13th in shelton shelton city hall 54 hill street and again, that is the city of Shelton, and it's called the Route 8 Study TOD <laughs> Workshops slash Charrettes. Sure. Each one's taking place from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. So if you could, I know the, the, these mm -hmm. topics are, are large and a little bit unwieldy for people that aren't involved in it every day like myself, but basically what is happening uh, in each one of these public forums that you're planning, Rick? So uh, let, me, let me try and put it in context. Um, we're conducting a, a corridor study of the entire Waterbury Branch Line and Route 8 corridor. The charrettes are a piece of that, and they're designed to help communities determine their their planning around station areas. And I just I'll, I'll just rudely interrupt. Sure. You, can, you can hear the uh, train yes, coming in the background at we're right across from the Ancelia <laughs> train station. Yes, we are. I plan that. High production values here at this nonprofit. Excellent. All right, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no, that's good. Go ahead. That's good. But but what it does is is it uh, the charrettes are intended to help the communities design uh, their goals for planning and development around the train station areas. Uh, as Jim knows, he's, he's a leader and uh, I would say the lead advocate on the Waterbury Branch Line improvements, which are underway. Um, but for additional locomotives and and some train sets, uh, we. Uh, are at a point where we can have uh, a much higher level of service on that line. My agency study is looking at that, what those service levels could be. Um, and then we're also looking at where traffic diverts currently from Route 8 over the Commodore Hull Bridge into Shelton. We have so many cars that go in that direction. I, oh, that's, that's the, yeah. the worst traffic hub in the valley. That's right. And, well, in, in many parts of Connecticut, I mean, it's, it's in the top, three or five toughest places to travel in, in Connecticut on the, on the roadways. Um, and there is no effective public transportation to get into those areas. So we're going to look at an alternative mode. That's why one of the charrettes, uh, the one in Shelton, even though it's held at City Hall, the Derby-Shelton charrette was held in Derby at the Derby-Shelton rail station. The Shelton charrette for bridge is really for Bridgeport Avenue. How are we going to connect okay. from the Derby Shelton Rail Station over to downtown Shelton and then down to uh, the corporate parks in Shelton and then in Trumbull? Um, so we're looking at something like a CT Fast Track type service, which is has proven very effective, very efficient, um, and very popular 
Um, Except not with Dominic Thomas. Well, he is uh, the, the prominent uh, Derby, uh, not Derby, but, well, he's based in Derby, a land use attorney in the Valley. Mm-hmm. And every time he Even speaks, when he's not here, he has to be here, right? <laughs> well, every time he speaks, somebody brings up transit-oriented development, yes, and they're yes. always bringing up the, the fast track on the other side of the state, mm-hmm. which forever uh, angers Dominic Thomas. And he kind of he makes a point because it does it does feel, and I'm, you'll probably both uh, take issue with this, but like the, in terms of transportation, sometimes it feels mm-hmm. like the valley is overlooked, yeah. where we get press releases every day for all these wonderful things happening in New Britain and Hartford and places like that. But you're saying. It's it's start the work is starting the planning at least is starting to happen so, here in the valley. So without getting too far afield and and too arcane, um, this I largely blame that on the fact that our region was much too small. The, you know, people don't understand transportation dollars are appropriated through our through the regions and the, what are called metropolitan planning organizations, which we also are. When we were just valley for, uh, four towns. We didn't have control of the corridor to plan the corridor. We had partners based in Waterbury who had that piece of the corridor. We had partners in Bridgeport who had the Trumbull to Bridgeport piece of the Route 8 corridor. There was no comprehensive planning going on. So Capital Region, they started a, you know, a major infrastructure study for Fast Track 20 years ago. That's why they got it. They controlled the whole area. Oh, gotcha. Um, so so you have to look at, at how you know the state only can implement what we give them. Uh, in, in large part. So that's really been a key. I think now that we are a 19-town region that covers most of the Route 8 corridor, um, we're able to exert a lot more influence in the in the planning for these for these types of things. Um, but, you know, I, I, so it's a larger survey. Um, it's a larger study. We have, I, you know, I've got some data and some counts that, that I think are interesting. Um, but uh, really, I, I would uh, turn to Jim uh, and, and try and talk a little bit about the importance of transit because the key is to get the key is not to expand the highways that's the least efficient way to do this highways are not a scalable uh transportation option uh but trains and buses are scalable and uh brt is is a a really flexible and fast service we're we're trying to create a 20-minute commute from the derby shelton station the bridgeport station by way of bridgeport avenue so um, so you want to f- throw it to Jim for a second? Let's sure. I mean, Jimmy's been listening to me yak on so. <laughs> for, for like decades. <laughs> I would certainly weigh in and say that the, 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 the neat thing about the charrettes is nothing spurs action, uh, whether it be legislative action or bureaucratic action, uh, more uh, than grassroots attention in, in, in attacking into the grassroots. And I would say that we're seeing some, some great things on the Waterbury branch headed in, 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 headed, uh, in the future. But, uh, you know, that really all came about through grassroots, through forums, through getting people together. And, uh, you know, I remember Rick and I really early on being pioneers, you know, in 2013 and bemoaning the status of the uh, Waterbury branch. And he and I sat down and we talked about some of the goals. And we, you know, it's just about getting people together and it's uh, reaching out to the, to the potential users and the people who are interested in it. Yeah, and Jim, you had, or I had mentioned, this Senator Murphy's Transportation Advisory Council, is that uh, officially a thing now of which you remember? It is officially a thing that I've uh, that that they are putting the uh, putting the council together. They are getting uh, organized, and so yes, uh, we have not had the first date. They told us they would let us know that, but I think it's it's pretty close. So, and and just 
jumping off your point where you said, you know, this is grassroots organized. I mean, just since we launched in 2009, the fact that you have a U.S. senator now uh, taking an issue uh, or making this an issue uh, as part of his job, uh, what do you think that will will do or what are are your hopes and what is this uh, advisory council going to do, you think? Well, Senator Murphy certainly has been a huge advocate in his office for the Waterbury Branch Line, and I would say that having his uh, involvement and participation has already uh, reaped uh, benefits. A few years back, we uh, lost the express train to Stanford, and I, and I really do believe that the only reason we got that back was because Senator Murphy uh, got involved, and he he uh, called for a meeting with the Department of Transportation and Metro-North, and I think we got that pretty quick. So having a United States Senator and, and having his office as engaged as they are certainly has uh, already uh, proven to be beneficial for, for the branch. And then in terms of the improvements, yeah, I think uh, I think my landlord might have just uh, <laughs> showed up and he's going to throw us out if anybody hears those noises in the <laughs> background. But in, in terms of the the Waterbury Branch line, which is it just, it seems so critically important to the, the development of our downtowns in, uh, mm-hmm. in, and so even in Seymour, uh, Ansonia Derby, uh, of course, and Shelton, where they're just building more and more uh, apartments, condos, townhouses, right on the rail line. Mm-hmm. Uh, you review, because uh, we haven't had you on this podcast in a long time, what is the latest, how uh, is the work going on the Waterbury Branch Line? What's getting done? And then I want you to talk about what are your goals uh, for the uh, your group in 2018. The improvements coming to the Waterbury Branch, I, I would say really are, are, are threefold. First, they are in process of installing a cab, uh, a cab system, and, and they're coupling that with a PTC, positive train control system. And those are uh, two really different, succinct, succinct things. Uh, the cab system uh, controls will be able to control following trains, and that is the system that will work with the passing sidings and allow two trains to come down our single track. And part of that calls for four passing sidings, one in Milford, one in Beacon Falls, one in Waterbury, and one in Derby. The Derby siding is complete, although not active. And in the spring, we expect them to start work on the Beacon Falls siding. Separate to that is positive train control, uh, whereas the CAP system just controls a following train. Positive train control really takes into account track speed, uh, misaligned switches, curves in the track, and it slows the train from a safety perspective uh, based upon that. And then I think Rick re- referenced it as well. The third component, I would say, is the replacement of the cabs and the uh, the coaches and the locomotives, which we just talked to the Department of Transportation yesterday, and they're still on track to, to, to move ahead with that order out of the original Let's Go Connecticut money. So those are the three, what I would say, main prongs of the improvement in the Waterbury branch. And, and if I could just say one, one last thing to that. So now the key for us will really be um, ensuring, and Rick touched upon this uh, very well, uh, this will now allow for significant increases in service. So the next step for us is great. You know, the state's invested the $70 million to do all this. Uh, certainly we don't want that to, to, to be, you know, a waste of, of an investment. We really want to push to make sure that additional service comes with it. And what's the status of that? Do we know when we'll start seeing uh, the benefit of, of these improved improvements to the to the line? The uh, PTC and the cab control system are expected to be completed December 2020. So we're still, you know, I mean, 
uh, you know, still a few years away. But you know, all you have to do is is is, is go down there by Monroe Muffler at Break and Derby, and and you see the siding. You know, you see that additional siding next year. You'll be able to see the siding. You know, in Beacon Falls. So you know, the work is going, and and three years may seem far away, but mm-hmm. I think it'll be here before you know. Yeah. One of my favorite things about Jim Gilday is that uh, you go to his Twitter feed, or I, I assume you're by, you're the Waterbury line, right? That's your yes, sir. Yes, I am. Jim. And and like Jim's probably he's the only guy I know that will go down there. He's taking pictures of the <laughs> siding. <laughs> it's cool to see because it kind of it makes it accessible. Because I, I drive over that all the time. I never knew what it was. Right. Uh, so so that's pretty cool. What about now? A couple of years back, there was, I think, somebody at one of the forums that you had helped to organize called the Waterbury Branch an Outhouse on Wheels, which was, uh, was of course, just a gift to uh, journalists and headline writers. That was a way to engage people uh, in in this story. Um, in terms of kind of the, the physical appearance and, and, and the, your relations with the MTA in terms of breakdowns and, and the things that drive commuters nuts, uh, how are you doing uh, in, in, with those issues? I do feel, and, and again, I just want to reference the forms too. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say I've, I've always felt that you know Rick and I, you know, we kind of we partnered on this, and, and, and he's always been. You know, it's kind of neat, you know, he's, he, to have you know a, a fellow Derbyite, and we, we've always kind of partnered on this, and, and so I've always appreciated his, his role as well. Uh, but you know, I do actually think that our relationship with the MTA. Um, uh, and the Department of Transportation has improved. Mm-hmm. I've been chairman of the Connecticut Commuter Rail Council for the last few years, and I, I do find them more responsive. They did assign a, a Waterbury Branch advocate uh, to the branch. I do feel that if there's issues, you know, uh, I'm a phone call from being able to, to get in touch with the right person, and we try to work through those. And I, and I, and I, w- I want to mention, and, and this is really neat, and, and people, you know, because for years, you know, the house on wheels and, and, and the bus substitutions, this year to date, and this is really neat, the Waterbury branch line has the the best on-time percentage mm-hmm. out of all the lines uh, on the New Haven line. It has a better on-time percentage than the New Haven line, than the Danbury branch line, than the New Haven, New Canaan line. Uh, and so uh, they've really kind of turned a corner with the service. And, and certainly from day to day, you're going to hear there's a, a, a bus substitution. But overall, their on-time percentage is pretty strong, and we have the, the, the best OTP on the, brand, on, on the line right now. Mm-hmm. And then how about in terms of ridership? I know it kind of goes up and down. Uh, all the time, but how are you seeing more people riding the trains now? It seems like we're coming out of the recession a little bit, and I guess Rick, is, Rick, you have information too on that. Yeah, I, actually, I'll, I'll jump in and I apologize to Jim. I don't think we've published these numbers. We might have shared them with with uh, some people. We oh, haven't published the an exclusive. Results. Seventeen minutes in, here we go. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Burying the lead. Um, the uh, so the. Our agency, uh, my staff, conducted onboard surveys of uh, Waterbury Branch Line trains in late September and early October. They were out there for four days. Um, so we did a total passenger count on an average daily basis. In, what was interesting is one, one of the things that people r- repeat constantly is, well, there's only 300 riders a day on, on the Waterbury mm-hmm. Branch Line. State, I've state officials tell me that. And Who? Th- I won't, say, right, I won't say. I won't say. Um, I won't press you. But there, you know, the state's own counts from 2015 are are um, I think 867, and in 2016, 761 is an average daily. We went out and we found over a thousand daily riders on the Waterbury Branch Line. Um, about five, five, a little, a little more than 500 inbound, a little more than 500 outbound. It's it's a pretty consistent number. Um, interesting stats on it. 45 percent of the riders don't transfer to a New Haven main line. Uh, obviously, 54% do, uh, 54.5% uh, 
transfer to, to New Haven Mainline. 87% of those people transfer again at Bridgeport. Um, 6% are tra- transferring at Stanford uh, and uh, some at Stratford because of the, the way the trains are routed and scheduled. Um, so we what we found out is people on the Waterbury branch line, 29% of them, their, their final destination is Grand Central Station, which we thought was a surprisingly high number. Uh, 19% are going to Stanford. Um, and then uh, to only 2.5%, obviously, are going east to New Haven because you have to go to Bridgeport to get there. To get there. It's a very, very long trip. Mm. It's, a, it's actually quicker from Waterbury to New Haven to take the bus, uh, the CT Transit bus, uh, than it is mm. to, to try and schedule things to get to New Haven from the Waterbury branch line. And then just randomly, the 29% of riders that are making their way to Grand Central Station mm-hmm. each day, do we have any idea like what what they do for a living down there? What types of... Um, no, no, we, 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 didn't, we didn't go into that. Gotcha. Level of detail on the survey. But um, it's not just the the 29.5% to Grand Central. The, another 9% are going to 125th Street, getting off at 125th Street. Um, so, and, and from there, they're probably getting on public transit. They're probably getting a, a subway down the east side. Um, so, I, I, you know, it, it was really interesting to, to find out uh, that more than half the people on the train are using it for work, mm-hmm. uh, commuting. Um, 78% of them use the train in both directions each day, um, which was also a surprising number. And uh, over 42%, five times a week or more, are on the train. Um, Two to four times a week was, was 28%. You know, so I mean, they're, they're they're very very strong numbers. I think it shows the demand is there. We see the ridership rise when gas prices rise. Um, people, it seems more worthwhile, I think, to some people to give up their car. Um, and that's really the, the the struggle with this. That's really the the overall reason why we're doing this. I said to, I said earlier, you can't scale highways. It's not a scalable system. So we have such bad performance at the Commodore Hall Bridge. Um, I, I probably don't have to go through it for anyone who's actually listening to this podcast. But but the uh, in the PM uh, northbound on Route Eight between uh, exits twelve and exits twenty, the average speed is twenty five miles per hour. Wow! In the morning peak between twenty and twelve, it's thirty two miles per hour. We have 740 accidents every year between uh, the Stratford-Sheltontown line and the Waterbury-Watertown Water, line on Route 8. The accident rate is about 87 accidents per mile, but it exceeds 300 accidents per mile along three sections. Exit 15, which is Route 34. Exit 27, which is up in Naugatuck, and exit 31 and 32 in Waterbury. Um you know, most most of the accidents are property damage, but in in this period measured, and they, these numbers are from 2013, 2011 to 2013. I'm actually surprised that exit 13 mm-hmm. doesn't, because we just uh, all day long on when we you right. know the evening commute, listening to the scanner, yep. they're constantly being sent to you know 13, 13, 11. So a lot of 13 and 14s get counted at 15, oh, okay. um, because it's it's one section coming through when it, when you make that bend. Uh, in Shelton and it narrows down and it goes under the, the city cross streets through the underpasses and and it really necks down before you get to the Commodore Hall Bridge. So you get a lot of accidents in there, but they tend to get reported at 15. It's okay. wherever the cars pull over. It's wherever the police respond to. Where they, ac- okay, right. where they pull up to. Right. Oh, fascinating. So we, okay. we suspect that the, those are, a lot of those are exit 13 
uh, or interchange 14 technically. And then the basic problem with the bridge is that there's just it wasn't designed to hold that many cars. And well, you know, we have we have greater than 80,000 average daily just on the bridge itself. The interchanges between uh, 34, uh, 8, and 110, you know, that that number's over 130,000 cars a day. That's that's larger than many interchanges on I-95. Hmm. Um, so it's very dense. Uh, the level of service uh, in the vicinity of Commodore Hall Bridge is F. I mean, they're, they're failing. Everything fails, every modeling and testing in that area. And this is really the key issue for, for, for taxpayers. And this is an economic development issue, and this is a cost issue. We're going to spend at some point in, in the future of Connecticut, we're going to have to expand the Commodore Hall Bridge just for capacity if we want to continue to rely on motor vehicles to get all of these people to jobs in Shelton, in Trumbull, and down the line, or to stations on the main line if we don't provide proper rail service on the branch line. Because those people drive, we have, we track people who drive from Cheshire to uh, to Bridgeport and Fairfield to park and get on the train. Um, wow. So they're, they're in their car, they're on Route 8, they're through that traffic jam, and then they're getting on the train to go to New York. It, it, it's, it's an insanity. So we, we need to get the cars off. If we re have to replace the Commodore Hall Bridge for capacity or widen that area, if that's the solution that people want, you know, we're going to spend like a half billion dollars minimum. You'll probably be at a billion dollars by the time you finish that project. We could implement everything that we need on the Waterbury Branch Line for less than a half billion dollars. We could probably in install... BRT service as well on the Route 8 corridor. And BRT service as is bus rap rapid transit. That's okay, like CT gotcha, fast gotcha. track. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, and for people who aren't familiar with that, they really should ride it. Just even just go up on a weekend to, to New Britain, get on it, take the express into into Hartford, just for the experience of it. It's not. It's actually it's nicer than a bus or a train. It's got Wi-Fi. You can get work done. But the key is it does in the Route 8 corridor between. Uh, Derby Shelton and Bridgeport it's an extraordinarily wide expressway and the right-of-way is even wider than that we can get exclusive bus lanes on that right-of-way and go out make a stop in on Bridgeport Avenue Research Drive that area Trap Falls back down into the the Trumbull Business Park and then you know make a 20-minute connection would be our goal something in that range between Derby Shelton Station and uh one of the stations in Bridgeport, whether it's the new one or the existing one. Um, and by, by creating that, we now have a scalable system that people should want to ride that'll be convenient and will be able to get them to their jobs. You know, we, we've got like 30,000 people a day inbound to Shelton, and we've got to figure out how to get them there some other way mm. than everyone driving their own car. Um, yeah, there's some angry drivers commuting to Shelton. I'm going to tell you right yeah, there. Yeah, right well, you know, it's, I, I pick it's up my everywhere. kids in, a, in, in Bridgeport at school, come home on. A, yep. I, I blame specifically the people that are going to uh, Bob Sinto Towers. <laughs> I'll put that out there right now. <laughs> well, I don't know where exactly where they're all going, but um, we, we know where the destinations are and we know where the load is. Most of those people that you see in the, in the afternoon, they work in Fairfield County or further down the line, and they're coming home to houses that they purchased mm -hmm. in uh, up and down the Naugatuck Valley. Um, you know, when you think about what our problem is, it, it's kind of a, I won't say uniquely, but it's a very American problem. Um, it's kind of the the use of the motor vehicle has been the democratization of, of luxury and speed and convenience and at the cost of 
our economy. It worked for a while. It worked when suburban office parks were the model and towns kept expanding and developing. But the costs associated with running all these suburban towns and, you know, great. You get a business, they go out in the woods and they build a, a, a big office park and they put in the infrastructure. But then the taxpayers own that infrastructure and they have to maintain it and they have to keep it up. Now we're at the point where people don't want to, younger people don't want to live in these areas. They want to live in areas that are convenient, that they don't have to necessarily own a vehicle, a motor vehicle all the time. They can use zip cars or rental cars or Uber um, when they need that. By, by bringing this type of a system into Connecticut by expanding, I mean, the, I, I thought the governor's plan for metro, the Metro North line to you know, he said his goal originally was to, so that no one needed a train schedule to take a train. You just show up, and within 10 minutes, there'll be a train running on the on the main line in either direction. Um, so that's really rapid transit. That's, that's not really commuter rail. But that should be the goal because until we have a system like that, 95 is going to be a mess. Route 8 is going to be a mess. 91 is going to be a mess. We need these systems f for economic development. And the taxpayers, frankly, pay more. The biggest, you know, this is this is the thing that Chambers of Commerce, I usually get booed. Um, no one gets booed. I, I, I just spoke at a Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> if I don't get booed. The, the, the thing is, I, I ask them all, what's, what's the mode of transportation that gets the greatest subsidy? And people are always complaining, you know, bus riders only pay 25% of the cost of their ride. And rail riders only pay, uh, what do you guys pay, Jimmy, 60% of your ride, 50%? Uh, were you asking me? Yeah. Well, it's a fair... fair. Yeah, it's, it's Waterbury Bridge, it's, I think you're, you're close, like 42%. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, and and I'll have people complain. You're providing all this subsidy to those people. I don't get a subsidy. Well, the most subsidized mode of transportation are people who drive motor vehicles. They don't pay anywhere near 25% of the cost of maintaining a roadway system for them to drive on. I know where you're going with this, Rick. <laughs> We don't want to bring up your whole thing. You're driving. You pay tolls based on how much a tax on how much you pay, or how much you drive. Well, a tax based on how much you drive. But wait, uh, let's let's throw it to, to yeah, back to sure. Jim for a second because <laughs> we're calling him on his lunch hour yes. and he probably wants to eat. <laughs> and Jim, if you have to jump off, you feel free. No, just, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. fine. And this is uh, the stuff certainly that Rick's talking about is uh, is interesting and and important to the to the region and the community. Now you're actually you use the train uh, uh, every single day, correct? So you're you're yeah, on so that well, train. Well, I would say I would say yeah, three to four days a week, absolutely. There's a day or two here where I just again, and, and this is what we talk about. There's a, a time or two that I just simply can't make the time work. And so when Rick talks about getting cars off of the Commerhole Bridge or getting cars off of Route Eight, and and we talk about ridership, it kind of all ties in together. Is that with the current services that exists? There are countless people who simply can't take the train because you either have to leave Bridgeport at three, you know, at three forty-one, or you have to leave Bridgeport at, at five fifty-seven, and and, and 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 that's your option. Period. You know, and if you don't catch the five fifty-seven, they think the next train is eight thirty-nine. You know, mm -hmm. and so and so that's really the issue. So many of the studies that the Department of Transportation conducted, as uh, uh, they looked at the passing siding uh, work, is that they feel that they could double you know, the amount of ridership that currently exists uh, on the Waterbury branch, because then you would be able to, to pick, to pick those gap up, gaps up. So to your point, I take the train as much as I could, but even for me, there's a day or two that it, it, it's just hard to make it work. 
And then, Rick, you had mentioned something interesting to me, just the, the concept of, of economic development. This is really an economic mm-hmm. development issue as much uh, as anything else. Sure. And then at the beginning of the podcast, you had talked about some of these charrettes you're having concentrate on mm-hmm. the area around our train station. Yep. And when I look at the, like, around the Derby stra- train station, it's it's sort of isolated. Right. Uh, you know, th- there's the new uh, transportation depot, I guess. I, is that a mm-hmm. correct word that, that was just built? Well, that, that's just a bus maintenance center. Um, we'll, we'll be undertaking a study of the uh, rail station, the historic rail station, Derby Shelton Station, after we move Valley Transit out of there and out into there, their okay. new building uh, or their renovated building. And I guess what I, where I was going to was that then we have uh, – there's the downtown redevelopment project mm-hmm. uh, in Derby. Uh, in the redevelopment zone there, which is right near the train station. Sure. And then we have the Route 34 widening project. Uh, the last, uh, it was, of course, you know, now we're having a change of administration in Derby. So uh, what's the latest you've heard on the Route 34 widening project? Last mm-hmm. we heard, the state is supposed to be uh, tearing down those buildings on the south side of Main Street, like where Alawa Tile yeah. was and the liquor store and the former uh, religious store that moved to, uh, I think, Orange. Uh, what's happening there? Mm. Well, so we've really been at a standstill for a year um, since last November because of objections from uh, the Downtown Now design team to the concept for the roadway. And down, just for, for our listeners, downtown now was this uh, a group put together by uh, Mayor Degado, uh, got a grant to hire DPZ partners, a planning firm, to uh, put together this this uh, effort to talk about downtown redevelopments. Mm-hmm. I probably shouldn't have even said that because I've just muddied the water some more. But anyway, go ahead. Well, so they objected to a design we were in final design on. So um, those issues were unresolved. Uh, they wanted to change uh, major uh, portions of it that would affect the performance of the roadway. So that never, I know because the, there was a letter sent to the state and mm-hmm. then there was another mm-hmm. forum held where you discussed right. all these things. Right. So that's just has that, that's, yeah, What's I mean, it's no surprise to anyone who's paid attention to this that I object strenuously to the recommendations of downtown now in regard to R- Route 34. Um, so, uh, I, I look, the buildings have been acquired by the state. Um, the only reason they haven't come down is, is my understanding is that the uh, fire department had asked to use them for training before they were demolished after the hazardous materials were taken out, the asbestos, the lead, and so forth. Although I had heard at one point that then after that was pulled back. I hear right? uh, That's what I've okay. heard in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That that's no longer going to be the case. So the DOT is free to proceed with their demolition, I believe. Um, Are they waiting for the? Because because now the state DOT is also, I assume, reviewing these changes that came up a year ago mm-hmm. out of the downtown now process. Where does that stand? Um, no, we we're at a standstill until we agree on a path forward for the design with City of Derby. Now, obviously, my preference would be to revisit the whole issue and and go back to the design we had a year ago. We were ready to go to final design and construction documents and construction um, and proceed with that plan. But it's up to the city of Derby because that that plan relies upon one-way circulation on Minerva but and But did Derby Street. say we want to tweak this plan? I thought that whole meeting was, you. all right, we're going to bring this up to the state and see what they have to mm-hmm. say about it. Yeah, but it we, just never, we, never actually well, went we that took, way. It was just a stalemate. We, we had to... We had to take counts and model. Um, uh, and I don't I want to get too technical. Um, so the traffic that moves over the bridge from Shelton 
and down Route 34, which is less of a concern from Roosevelt Drive, whether creating a left-hand turn at Elizabeth Street, which we were eliminating under the plan, whether uh, creating that turn would diminish the performance of the intersection at, at Bridge and 34, backing up, essentially backing up traffic. Um, and, you know, we, we decided to go out and do new traffic counts. So we didn't model it yet. We haven't modeled it yet. I'm looking forward to, to meeting with the new administration next week and, and having a discussion about this. Yeah. Have you talked to uh, uh, Rich Zekin or Andrew Backlick or any of his? Yeah. Uh, well, I haven't checked. I mean, he's getting, as of, as of this recording, Rich Zekin will be sworn in tomorrow. Tomorrow. Saturday, Sorry. December 2nd. And since the election, um, they've they've contacted us. They've reached out. Um, Rich was the representative from Ansonia. He was the alternate representative for Ansonia. He was employed there to my agency. So he's familiar with our process um so i've met with uh rich and, and parts of his team and uh you know they're they're going they plan to move quickly on this and and try and get a project rolling so that we're all in agreement on what the design should be i'm looking forward to that next week and have you heard anything about i mean uh, just last week the city of derby received uh bond commission money i want to say mm -hmm. or i'm not sure exactly what the source it was state money for uh two hundred thousand dollars Okay, for remediation. Of yeah. So, so actually, uh, it's the grants come through my agency for brownfields. Um, so we're we have uh, two hundred thousand for Derby, two hundred thousand for Ansonia, um, and the Derby money is intended to do the environmental testing under the proposed. So, out of the downtown now project, they propose this U-shaped street yes. yeah. grid to um, on the south side of Main Street to. Uh, create the infrastructure necessary for development of of buildings down there. Uh, so that plan, this money will do the underlying environmental assessments to determine what type of remediation may be required once those properties are are, are uh, acquired and uh, in order to build the roadway and infrastructure on top of that. Okay. They they have other decisions to make as to as to how they handle um, the south side of Main Street. But the planning and zoning has approved the uh, the U shaped concept, and uh, and we'll see with this new administration what happens right. with that plan. I assume. Right. But we, well, you know, I mean, it's it, the board of aldermen and the administration control development of the city. Um, it's up to them. I mean, I, I'm not going to. I don't. I don't pretend to speak. Pretend mm -hmm. to speak for either the old administration or the incoming administration. Um, but uh, you know, the land owned by the city of Derby, which most of that land now is owned by the city of Derby is under the control of the board of aldermen. That's, that's by charter. So it's going to be an interesting year yeah. uh, moving forward in Derby. And then sure. Jim Gilday, just putting on your other hat as a member of the Derby board of education for, yes, for a long time now, how many, how many years have you been on the board of ed? This will be, uh, I'm about to enter my uh, 21st, I think, and uh, 22nd year out of the last uh, 28. I mean, some, some kind of some kind of crazy amount. <laughs> yeah, that that is incredible. Because, uh, I, I mean, those are the meetings. Planning and zoning can be long sometimes, uh, but Board of Ed anywhere. Uh, those are those, that's a commitment right there. Uh, well, you know, Gene, as you know, I have seven kids, and I, yeah. I space those out pretty good. So, you know, this is one way to give back for certain. Yeah, absolutely. But I, one thing that 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 
came out of this uh, election November 6th, uh, which I didn't even notice that night, to be honest with you, because the Derby Board of Education is not a political body uh, from what I've experienced. You can't tell who's a Democrat and who's a Republican really on that board. But uh, there was a a Republican uh, majority now. Uh, yes, on, on the Derby Board of Education, uh, what can you talk about uh, the, the composition of the board now, and, and what you think the goals uh, will be in in Derby in terms of education for the next year or so? What what, what challenges does the school district uh, face? I think uh, well, first and foremost, I think you hit the nail on the head. Is is I've served on many boards and commissions. And, and, and truly I've been fortunate that very few of the boards or commissions I've been on that have been political. So, so I do think that our board, the, the previous board, and, our, and certainly the incoming board, will always focus on what's the, in the best interest of the children, and, and we continue to do that. Uh, moving ahead, I would tell you what certainly some of the concerns are is uh, from a budgetary perspective. Uh, I think we're getting to a point where some of the grants uh, that we've been lucky to get, uh, our alliances, Priority school district grants. We start to get worried uh, when you see the economic climate that the uh, uh, state is in. Um, you start to get worried that that, that the grants will, will continue to be there. And quite frankly, one of the biggest differences this go round versus my my first 14 years on the board uh, was that we've had those grants for the last four years, and they're significant grants. They're millions of dollars, and and, and quite frankly, in many cases, they've carried us. So on the horizon, I think we really have to uh, uh, from a budget budgetary perspective, start to, to, to plan as if how we, would, how we would live in a world without those grants because, because it is concerning to, to, to know that they're not always going to be there. And we just covered, or Ethan Fry covered last night, the inauguration of Ansonia Mayor David Cassetti for a third term in the city next to Derby. And one of the things that the mayor seemed to bring out, at least according to Ethan's story, was this concept of regionalization. And it was a concept that we asked a lot about uh, during the Derby debate that we helped to organize uh, and then the in-house debate we did for the, with the Ansonia candidates. Do you think school district regionalization, Jim, will be something that, that comes up, uh, up uh, for discussion again? I, I know it was under the previous uh, superintendent. It had been talked about for a couple of years, uh, and then it kind of uh, went away because essentially parents uh, spoke out against it, and there was no real support for it from what I saw. And then the the, the district has rebounded uh, under Dr. Conway and his ability to get grants and then the state support in terms of the Alliance District and everything you just mentioned. It seems that the school district was suddenly on a, uh, on better footing than it had been in, say, 2009-2010. But uh, as I blab on, regionalization, do you think there'll be any real talk? Could we see a combined school district uh, at some point? Personally, I, I, I do think that there's 169 towns in the state of Connecticut, and when you see what's happened to us economically, there, there, there has to be some realization of trying to share services. So um, to me, I think you have to have a dialogue on sharing services, and, and that's really where the discussion needs to start. What services can we share? Can we regionalize and or share cafeteria services, busing services, special education services? So really for me, that's where the discussion starts. What services uh, can we regionalize? What can we take advantage of having an economy of scales of a larger student population and start from there? And then, uh, Rick, you just uh, hit me across the face. Why? <laughs> or do you want to add something? Well, it's, I always think it's interesting. Jimmy and I, uh, don't dis- we, we don't di- directly discuss education, but we, I have a very different opinion um, 
and I think Connecticut has to face up to some realities. Um, hundred and it's actually more than 169 school districts, right, Jim? Um, yes, sir. Right. Yep. So, so we're providing education, which is the second after transportation, I think is the second largest cost center in, in the state in the state budget. Um, and when you look at how the state subsidizes education, you look at the McCausher decision, which is the, the court decision by the judge that's being appealed by the state. The state is obligated constitutionally to provide public education. It doesn't say the town should share the cost. But we have this crazy quilt system where we, we've observed this concept of home rule, where towns have their own boards of ed. They run their own school district. doesn't matter how efficiently they educate the kids. And I'm, this is not about educators. This is not a cut on teachers. It's about how many kids we're educating and at what cost. Honestly, I think Connecticut should have like six school districts, maybe eight tops, um, and eight here, superintendents of schools. Here comes Radical Dunn. That's right. And and let the state provide it. Let the cities, you know, I think the state should stop opposing the Macau decision, stop the appeal. Uh, they should take on their obligation to fund 100% of educational costs, um, which would immediately allow the towns to, to cut their mill rates by about 50%. Um, we want to talk about economic development and business attraction. The state would gain the greatest um, uh, economy of scale by running education the way it's running most of the rest of the country, which is by on a county basis. Um, so if, if they were to do that, something like that, state takes over 100% of the cost, funds it uh, through the, the uh, sales and use tax, the, the general revenue streams that are available to the state, allows the cities to, to reduce their mill rates by, by half. Um, but the cities would have to agree. They'd have to agree to give up their infrastructure, to give that back to the state, to let the state take it over and run it. Um, it may not mean your kids get to go to school at your alma mater. Um, it may not mean that they go to the closest high school. But we don't have that now. We send kids to magnet schools all over the place. Tell me about right. it. Right. Your kids, you live in Derby, your kids go to Bridgeport. Yeah. Um, uh, Kurt Miller uh, has a son. New uh, Haven, that I think. Goes to New Haven yeah. from Seymour. Yeah. I mean, we, we do this No all bus transportation over. for either of those cases. Well, yeah. and that, that's an issue. I mean, there, there, there are some cost issues. But, when, you know, when we get to administrative salaries, um, we're talking a significant amount of money uh, right off the bat. Uh, so, so if if there were such a system in place, and towns could opt out, I, I think they should be able to opt out. The towns, you know, get only a million dollars a year. I know it sounds strange to say only a million dollars, but that's a tiny proportion of an education budget generally. Um, towns that get uh, uh, small proportions, they want to keep their school system. By all means, keep it, but let that town pay a hundred percent of the cost. If, if Darien wants to keep their school system, go right ahead. Pay one hundred percent of the cost. Well, the, it sounds like they'll have like a the, just I don't know. Well, like, but, well, like a gated be, community because we, school system. Yeah, but we have this we have the system now where we have this an ECS formula that's never fully funded because we have a hold harmless that mm -hmm. says that affluent communities get some money even if the formula says they should be paying into the state system. They should have a they should have a negative payment. Let me um, let me just jump in and ask, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Jim, did you, do you have anything you wanted to add to uh, <laughs> to Dunn's? Not surprised. <laughs> I, soliloquy. I, I love Rick. Rick. I love Rick. Rick's a great guy. I'm. I'm. I'm still uh, sticking my toe in the water. I'm not jumping in as, as right. quick as he is yet. Well, but that's, yeah. Let me. Let me. Let me. Let me. Like try to. Uh, not break it down, but but when Rick was talking about uh, you know all the the, the financial issues and the, and the ECS and I just thought about how you're a guy now that's been on the school board for like two generations. 
Uh, seven kids come through uh, the Derby public school system. Uh, Rick's a father, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, Jim, on the school board, I'm wondering, uh, when you sit there, and, and, and that, man, when, when that Board of Education budget comes up and there's you know, conflict over how much money to give, uh, I know since we launched in 2009, although it's gotten, it's, it's a much different atmosphere, but it was not just contentious, but, you know, you want to do, everybody wants kids to succeed and the school district mm-hmm. to be the best in the state because it helps everybody, but you can't, then you can't afford the taxes. And I, I'm wondering, like Jim, personally, how have you over the years deal with that? Because uh, I would imagine just sitting as a reporter, as a, as a sort of outside observer, I found it emotionally draining sometimes you could come home from this meeting because there's really no, there's no good guy, bad guy in those like budget discussions when it gets contentious. How, how have you dealt with that uh, over the years, Jim? You're right, because you know what, uh, there, there is nothing tougher than cutting a program that you really feel passionate about mm-hmm. uh, or, or not being able to provide something that you think is important. So those, those, those days certainly are tough. Uh, you know, through the years, you just try to uh, be as economically prudent and careful as you can be and uh, uh, take the amount of dollars that you had and, and, and made the best decisions with it. Uh, but again, having said that, I mean, I, I hear where Rick is going, and in some theory, we agree. Again, he, he, he's a little jumping in a little bit more, but 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 I do think that so the answer does lie in uh, economy of scale savings, uh, combining services, trying to, to trying to re- regionalize offerings. So uh, clearly, I do think that moving ahead, you know, uh, we're in a very different economic climate, and and, and we're going to have to start thinking differently. Mm-hmm. Okay, with Absolutely. that. With that, I want to thank Jim Gilday and Rick Dunn for coming on this podcast. And uh, that's it. Thank you My both. My pleasure. My pleasure. Can I just say one thing? Yeah, go right ahead. If I could, I want to, I want to plug for, for all those folks who've, who've ever read the Valley Independent Sentinel, looked through the, looked through the election day coverage, uh, couldn't wait to, to open it up in the morning to see what's happening. I think you've got to buy your uh, Valley Indie uh, t-shirt. I bought mine today, <laughs> and I just want to put a plug, twenty four ninety nine. It's a fine-looking t-shirt. I recommend everyone go buy one. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for buying a t-shirt. Rick bought one too, which wasn't uh, it wasn't it, it wasn't like a quid pro. You didn't have to buy it to we, get on this podcast. No. I just want to point that out there. <laughs> we, and we didn't coordinate this. All right, guys. And always, it's a pleasure, Mr. Dunn. Take care, everybody. James, good to talk to you. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you. For hundreds of years, we brought you the news. For info, we gave you the clues. Owners' profits were always sky high. Changing market now threatens our lives. Post literation, critical reading, dumbed down nation, signs of inbreeding, TV sucking ideas from our head, public discourse, just about dead. We'll ride the dinosaur. Yeah, ride the dinosaur. Our readers are in the opens each day. Constant attrition will rise.
dinosaur We'll ride the dinosaur Dinosaur. 